Remember in Luke's gospel, uh, basically chapters 9 through 17 all take place on the road as Jesus travels and constantly is encountering new people and situations. That gives you the context again of verse 25 and what he says that follows. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether you have enough to complete it? Otherwise, when you have laid the foundation and are not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule you, saying, this fellow, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The gospel of the Lord. Actually, you can keep your bulletins open to page 5, which will get you to the very first line in the second lesson that Nancy just read. And what I want you to do is reread verse 11 just to yourselves right now. And I'll just wait for your reaction. Nobody's, nobody's laughing. Didn't... Didn't you get the joke? Maybe I should explain the joke, huh? Uh, so uh, in the Greek in which Paul writes this letter, the, the name Onesimus also means useful. And if you change one letter to make it Onesima, it means useless. Now reread it and think dad joke. Formerly he was Anesima to you, but now he is in, indeed both Anesimus, both to you and to me. It's still not super funny, I admit, but I think he was trying to make just a little play on words in the midst of a really serious letter. Remember the context that Nancy set up for you on that particular letter? Paul's probably in jail, probably in Rome near the end of his life, and, and suddenly jailed with him is this runaway slave named Onesimus, who turns out to be from the house of a guy named Philemon in one of the places where Paul has founded a church. Paul, at, talk about small world back then. What are the chances of a runaway slave, probably from another region within the large Roman Empire, ending up in the same place where Paul is in Rome? And, and related to somebody that Paul actually knows. And so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter with the instructions to Philemon to read it carefully. And, and what's Paul saying? Uh, think, think of slavery in this country, which you know, officially ended in 1863, 1865, but continued as segregation you know, way into the, the 50s and 60s legally in this country. Uh, and plenty of, of slave owners would point to this letter over the centuries and say, well, Paul sent him back. He wasn't against slavery. And an abolitionist could read the same material and say, 
Well, he sent him back, but if you read the end of the letter, it seems pretty clear that he's saying, as a brother in Christ, he shouldn't be somebody you own. You should free him. And Paul, of course, had written that in Galatians. Because of Christ, there isn't a slave or free anymore. And in the midst, of, you know, Paul was like the most serious theologian around, the most intense guy imaginable. I don't think there's a place anywhere else in his writings where he even comes close to attempting a joke. So here, in perhaps the most personal thing he writes, the most intense of situations, the fact that verse 11 is in there and he's got that little wordplay in there, is kind of striking. And, and you wonder, um, uh, what was Paul really saying? And I think we're not totally sure what the answer is to that. But I would say it's pretty clear that Paul was counting the cost. In other words, Paul wasn't afraid to die, and he's going to end up being killed in, in Rome. And he's made it abundantly clear by the actions in his life that he will die for Christ in an instant. But if this letter is found you know, by the Romans, he'll die instantly for opposing slavery in the empire, possibly. Uh, and, and so he seems to count the cost on how, how uh, out there should he be in what he says. Whether he counted the cost correctly or not, um, perhaps that's up for debate, and maybe only God knows the answer to that. But it's reflected, I think, a little bit in the fact that in the most serious of situations, he takes a little time to put the word play in, maybe as a way of reminding Philemon of who's really writing to him. What are some things in human life that we don't count the cost on very well? Build the list. Where do we underestimate costs all the time? Construction, yeah. You know, think it's going to cost this, it costs that. Repairs, all that stuff. Car repairs. What else? Groceries. Now, uh, think not just uh, financial costs. Think of time costs. Think of people costs. How long is, every time you get stopped at a train, don't you always think it's going to be two minutes at the train? No, no, no. It's going to be like ten minutes at the train. You, you just know that's how it's going to turn out. We underestimate the cost on that. Uh, how else do we underestimate costs? You've had a long day. You're a little stressed out. Somebody's getting under your skin. You know you shouldn't go off on them, but you do. Is there going to be a cost on that? There's going to be a cost. And, and we tend to uster, underestimate it. I'm the one who's stressed out. I can go off a little bit. <sighs> Maybe not. Um, Jesus knew we underestimate costs all the time as human beings. I mean, all the time, universally. But, but in today's gospel lesson, he gets to some really specific things. And it's really valuable for us, I think, to think about this uh, individually and collectively. So... Uh, what, what was the first line in the gospel lesson? You can look. You've, you've got it there. Now there were large crowds following Jesus. Why wouldn't there be? He's healing people. Ooh, maybe he'll heal me. He's getting in the face of the Pharisees and the, and the, and the chief priests, and nobody really likes them anyway because they're so legalistic, and they take all the fun out of everything, and he gets after them. That's awesome. And, and, you know, all the other things that would have been cool about Jesus. So these large crowds start following him. It's almost like 
a circus, a frenzy. And Jesus kind of pauses and then says to these large crowds, um, you have to be willing to hate everybody to follow me. And at the end he says, you have to be willing to give up everything you have to follow me. Whoa. Talk about counting the cost. And in between then, he tells these two little snippets. Uh, if you're going to build a tower, you've got to calculate the cost. If you're going to go to the war, you have to calculate the cost. And I think those two examples are really important because I think he's getting at two different things. One of which is sometimes we underestimate the cost because we just don't know what it is. I think the classic example on this is a couple gets married and they're going to have a baby at some point. Well, when do you do that? And some couples have no idea what that's going to cost. And so they just have a kid right away. Whoa. And then other couples, so they, in a sense, spend no time counting the cost and probably underestimate it. And then there are other couples who do what? They spend years trying to figure out what's this going to cost us financially and are we going to be in a good place professionally and will we have had a chance to travel and will we have worked through our personal demons? Uh, and they do all this stuff to try and be ready for the right time. And, and they maybe don't get the cost right either. So there are a lot of things in life where, where you just don't know the cost and, and, uh, until you actually encounter it. Or perhaps objectively you can calculate it. Like if you're going to build a tower. You, you, you probably can objectively calculate what is this thing going to talk, uh, cost if you talk to a couple contractors. But the second one is, is the harder one. Uh, you're a king and you really want to take over that piece of land. And you've got 10,000 troops available to you. You also have, if you're king, probably a pretty big ego, various political pressures, various marriage alliances that you have to honor, probably a fair amount of testosterone. And, and so you, you do know that that, that piece of land has 20,000 troops defending it, but what the heck? You've got alliances, and you've got ego, and you've got testosterone, and you've got 10,000 troops. You can win that, right? Count the cost. And, and he's not getting on any one of us. And of course, he's getting after all of us. Because we all underestimate our own sins, our contributions to <laughs> problems in life, and also the, our tendency to duck out of our responsibility for doing something about that. And that's true for me and it's true for everybody sitting here. We, we don't count it sometimes and sometimes we count it wrong. So Barb and I went out to Washington DC to visit our oldest son about two weeks ago and he lives and works out in DC. And he's such a good person, he like didn't, he didn't take off while we were there. So, but we had a long weekend. Uh, so while we was working during the day, we had all of these museums and things that we could go to. Um, one of the museums we went to was the uh, Jewish Holocaust Museum. Any of you been there? A couple of you, okay. Um, so that, we went to a number of museums. We also went to the African American Museum, the Native American, or the American Indian Museum you know, which are difficult places to, to go to. But what was kind of striking about um, the Holocaust Museum is it was, in, in some respects, quite personal to us 
as, as Lutherans. Um, the first thing you see when you walk into the exhibits actually is the quote I put in today's opening section from Dwight Eisenhower. How before the war even ended, I think the date of that quote is April 19th, 1945, so it's shortly before the end of the war, when the Allied troops were, were coming upon the concentration camps, and he said, you know, I'm intentionally going to come to this place because I know at some level that at some point people will say, well, it wasn't as, it wasn't as bad as people say it is, or it didn't even happen. And he said, I'm, I'm purposely going to come here so I can bear witness to the fact that this incredibly horrific thing actually happened. I think he's a great example of somebody who knew how to count the cost. He, he, I think more than anyone understood the cost of that war, and he also understood the cost of an action, inaction, and so he went there, uh, specifically so that future generations would understand what had happened. When you tour the museum, there are so many powerful things to see, but what's interesting is you see two 12-minute videos as a part of it that try to somehow get at how, how in such an intelligent, educated country like Germany could something so horrific happen and have it happen in such a short period of time. And one of the interesting things they do in the second video is they look at some of the religious roots of that and they look at the effect of the Protestant Reformation in Germany and they say, uh, interestingly, Luther at the beginning of the Reformation was perceived by the Jewish community as kind of an ally almost because he, he was much friendlier to the Jewish community than the Catholic Church had been at the time. However, Luther was also kind of hoping that uh, Judaism would therefore convert to Protestantism. And when they did not, he grew increasingly hostile. And un if you've had opportunity, unfortunately, to read some of his late uh, writings, he is uh, incredibly anti-Semitic. In, in what he writes. And that comes back to haunt Lutheranism in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, there are many examples of, of, for example, Catholic people who tried to shelter Jews in the 1930s and 40s. There are hardly any examples of Lutheran people who did the same. Lutherans aided it, um, they ignored it, they abetted it. It's a sad part of our heritage Interestingly, though, how the very last movie ends, and just think of all the things they could have ended those movies with, but how the last one ends is with a screen that says, in 1994, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America repudiated Luther's writings. And that's how it ends. That's like the last thing they say. And I think on, on, on the one hand, it's an act of amazing grace by the Jewish community. Uh, to, to say to this faith tradition uh, that they honor the fact that we recognize that and have changed. But I also kind of wondered as I saw it on the screen there that that was 1994. When did Eisenhower see this? That was 1945. In other words, it still took us another 49 years uh, to repudiate something that we should have repudiated um, in a second. Does that mean we should hate who we are as, as Lutheran people? No. <laughs> um, remember what I said at the beginning. When Jesus says, you got to count the cost, he's aware that everybody sitting here and, and everybody that's come before us and everybody who comes after us 
in one way, shape, or form underestimates the impact of our sin individually and collectively on the world. And he, and he just says, I, I love that you want to follow me. I love that all of you are here as crowds to be a part of this. But, but I'm not just here to do miracles for you or to get in the face of the Pharisees. I'm here because I, I, I want you to not be a slave to your own material possessions. And I, I'm here because your, your closest relationships will sometimes uh, be an enormous distraction from, from the important things you need to do with your own life. And that if you aren't honest about these things with yourself, you won't be honest with anybody else either. Count the cost. That's a hard thing to, to think about. Oh, but this is maybe where we should end. What number comes after 14? It's not a trick question, people. That would be 15. Uh, which chapter in Luke did we just read from? would be 14. Anybody know what's in 15? Three stories. One about a lost coin that gets found. One about a lost sheep that gets found. And one about a lost prodigal son that gets found. In other words, Jesus loved those crowds. He loves you. He loves me. He loves Lutherans. <laughs> loved Luther. He loves Jewish people too. He loves all of them. And, and the last word is chapter 15, a God who comes looking for the lost, which would be all of us. But before he tells those great stories, he is honest enough and, and strong enough to, to speak chapter 14 to us as well. And to say, wow, you know, just count the cost every once in a while. And the thing is, people of God, that's not a budgeting thing. That's, that's a Jesus thing. And to invest in Jesus is to be alive. Live a bit, little bit this week, people. 